0: Jesus, we want to thank you so much for um, dying for us on the cross, providing everything that we could possibly need uh, for all the daily trials that we go through right now. Um, Lord, I, I just pray you continue to humble me and, and have me be a, a usable vessel for you. Lord, and all of us are praying that same thing. We want to see you move here in Denver. Lord, we want to see this, this place filled up just with people that we know that need you. And we trust you that you're, you're going to bring the right people at the right time. But Lord, we, we have a heart for this city. Lord, we want to see the, the broken people healed. We want to see the lonely people have a family. Lord, if someone came in here tonight and they were lonely, this would be the best place in the world for them. Because I know that the hearts of the people here would, would surround them in love and would bring comfort and validation into their life. And Jesus, we just ask for that opportunity. Lord, I pray that every single time someone walks into our campus here, Lord, that we would have that mindset, that we would look at them and love them and reach out to them, Lord. Because it wasn't too long ago that we were that person that walked in lonely and afraid and scared. And Lord, you reached out to us and there's been people that reached out and poured into our lives. And Lord, your church has been just like this. Fathers teaching sons and elders teaching younger people all the way back to you, Lord. This is one group, one message. And Lord, we... Uh, we enjoy, we rejoice in being a part of that. So Jesus, please fill me and my words with Your Holy Spirit. Fill our hearts with Your Spirit, God. Lord, I just pray You would You'd give us gifts, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so Galatians chapter four is where we're at, and we're gonna we're gonna finish chapter four this week. We're gonna go from chapter verse twenty one all the way down through verse thirty one. So those ten verses. And uh, if I was to title this message, it would be called Mutually Exclusive. Mutually Exclusive. And the point, uh, the the reason why I picked that is because um, Paul is going to take an Old Testament example and story and he's going to show how these two things, these two covenants, these two ways of living that we've been looking at in Galatians are mutually exclusive. They cannot happen at the same time. Uh, That's the definition of mutually... I I looked this up because I I had thought about it, but it says uh, the definition is two events are mutually exclusive if they cannot occur at the same time. An example is tossing a coin once, which can result in either heads or tails, but not both. And then I thought in my mind, well, what if someone grabs out of the air? But that was just me being a dork. So... (laughs) But that's what mutual exclusive means. It's got to be one or the other. And of course, what I'm talking about is what we've been talking about in this whole series, which is this war on legalism. You can't have legalism and grace or the new covenant or real Christianity happening at the same time. They cannot coexist. And we're going to look at seven reasons tonight why, from this story, why they cannot exist. And it's just amazing that Paul... Throws out just this amazing, he, he takes us on this journey of looking how, of comparing and contrasting. My mind works really good with compare and contrast. I liked it when my teachers or professors would go through and say, it's like this, but it's not like that. And I like that way of learning. So for me, this just hits it for me. This is the way I learn. I really enjoy it. Okay, so I can, if I think that way, it's wrong. And I gotta think another way. And if I think this way, it's right. And so that other way is discounted. So I like that black and white view of things. So um, Galatians chapter four verse twenty one is where we're going to start. It Says, "Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law?" This is one of my all time favorite Bible verses. This is awesome. And I, and you can pull this one out. And you guys here are skilled in your in your Bible. Your guys' Bibles are highlighted and and starred and you got notes in there and you got some of your pages are torn from when you threw your bible across the room cuz you were mad and and some of your bibles had tear stains in them from when you when you lost someone dear to you and you guys here are the people who need, who know what I'm talking about this is the type of verse that should be starred underlined and you should have memorized you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? And I picture Paul writing this just in complete frustration. He's all, people, my precious brothers and sisters in Galatia, you guys who believed in Jesus, why do you want to go back to the law? Why would someone desire to be under the law? Well, I'll give you three reasons. First, you can always have an outward certainty of a list of rules to keep. That's pretty nice. Well, okay, if I just keep these ten things, I'll be all right. If I just do those ten things, I'll be all right. But we've examined that very closely, haven't we? And that doesn't work because of us. Secondly, you can compliment yourself because you keep those rules better than someone else does. Can you all think of someone who doesn't keep the rules as good as you do? Oh, yeah. And they're in this room right now. (laughs) Or maybe they're back in children's ministry. No, just kidding. Yeah, we can all... And it's, you know what? It's human nature to say, well, at least I'm not Marilyn Manson. At least I'm not Charles Manson. At least my name isn't even Manson. They don't seem to have a great lineage. But... um, we, it's our human nature. we say I'm just a little bit i'm I'm better at least than those people over there. In fact, do you guys ever catch yourself driving down the road and just being like all these people? They are such lawbreakers. Driving down Colorado Boulevard sometimes is just, man, a trip. You see people that have you know dressed in just ways that shouldn't be dressed and doing things and saying things and dancing certain ways down the street, you're just like, what is going on? It's so easy for my flesh to say, I'm better than them. Because look how nice I dress. And look how great my family behaves. And look how nice our car is. And look, I don't ever say those words. And it gives me a false sense of confidence. Because I'm just as much a lawbreaker as they are. When it comes to the law, that's the truth of the law. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. Finally, the third reason why you desire to be under the law is that you can take credit for your own salvation because you earned it by keeping the rules. But of course we know that doesn't work. That's not true. Because if we actually listen to the law, as Paul says, do you even hear the law? If we actually listen to the law... What is it saying? And I'm going to give you four, three, three things, three sentences that the law says to you, and they're going to be pretty aggressive. So I just, uh, just get be ready, be forewarned. If we were really listening to the law, we would hear it say, "Die, sinner." That's what we would hear. Boy, that's a good friend to have. That's why Paul is like, "Why would you want?" To be under someone who that's their message. Romans chapter 7 verse 5 says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So when we were under the law, it showed us, it revealed in us of all these sinful passions. And then the fruit of the law is death. So when the law is speaking to us, it's very good at saying, die, sinner. So remember that. That's the first thing the law says to you. The the next verse, though, is pretty cool in in Romans chapter 7, verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So that's why when I said that, I said it in like an old man voice, because it's the oldness of the letter. I just picture an old man with a crickety finger pointing it at you. This is the law. That's what I want you to think of the law. Crickety old man. I don't even know crookedy is a word, but now you know. How about this one? Shut your mouth. That's another thing the law says. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So it could say, shut your mouth, you're guilty. Like you could add all these things to it. It's just, what a friend we have in the law. Not really. It's not really our friend. It is a a cruel and honest person. And uh, the last thing I would have, I would kind of quote the law and what it says is, you're not good enough. Man, don't you love it when your parents said that to you? You're not good enough. Such an encouraging word from the law. Romans chapter, again, back there in Romans where we just were. Romans chapter 3, if you look at verse 9 through 19, those verses that were right before what we looked at, verse 20. But if you look at the previous verses, it says, uh, All, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged, that both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. As is written, there is no one righteous, no not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good, no not one. Skip down to 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those that are under the law. So, the law is very clear. The law is great at communicating what it communicates. You're not good enough, shut your mouth, and die. The law is really good at being a holier-than-thou, goody-two-shoes, rub-it-in, brutally honest measuring stick. I like that. Why would a relationship with that be more appealing than a loving Father who provides everything that we need for our life and godliness through His Son, Jesus Christ? Just trusting Him. So that's a contrast that we have. That's the main contrast. Tell me, you who hear the law, you who want to be under the law, do you hear the law? So next time someone says, oh, I just love keeping the Ten Commandments or the Ten. focusing on the Ten Commandments is something I really want to do. I want you guys to think, oh, no. I need to take them to Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. And I need to show them. I need to teach them. It's my responsibility to teach them that trying to keep the law is never going to work. It's never going to bless them. There's another way, and we've, we've learned much about that through our studies, but it's going to be clearly sh- shown here. So I'm going to read two quotes to you, one from Charles Spurgeon. It says, the Christian has no business living under the law. What is God's law now? It is not above the Christian, it is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod over Christians and say, if you sin, you will be punished with it. So I like that instead of the term being under the law, like a rod above us, the law is below us. So the next quote is from John Calvin and says to be under the law here signifies to come under the yoke of the law with the condition that God will deal with you according to the covenant of the law. And you re- and you in return will bind yourself to keep the law. See, there's no there's there's no partially like I just try my best. That's not how the law works. The law says you keep the law, all of it, or you die. That's what the law says. And so we can't let it creep in and have just a little bit. So now Paul is saying, okay, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear it? And now let's open our Bibles. This is what Paul's saying to Genesis chapter 16, and we're going to have a Bible study. So he's going to go through and he's going to exegete for us, or he's going to bring out a bunch of lessons from Genesis 16 through like 22 And he's going to tell us the story and contrast how this has always been God's way. Grace has always been God's picture and what God wanted to do in our lives, even back before the law, because this part of Genesis was before the law. So verse 22 of Galatians chapter four says, for it is written, that's Paul saying, let's have a Bible study. It is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. See, these just for the context, these legalistic people that were coming in, these Judaizers, they always had this idea, we are sons of Abraham. We're the sons of Abraham. And Paul, he's already refuted that. But here he goes in and he says, yeah, you might be a son of Abraham. You might be saved. You might know Jesus. But you got to know Abraham had two sons. He had two sons. And that's a big deal. And we're going to see tonight one son was a picture of the Christian who lives their life in legalism and the other son is a true Christian who trusts the Lord. We're going to see this, this uh, this is where we're going to start having these seven different contrasts. So, uh, the two sons' names were Ishmael and Isaac and I'm going to briefly tell you the story. We won't go back and read the ten chapters that this story is told in but you can go back and read Genesis this week if you'd like. So Abraham gets called by God, and God tells him, Hey, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a child. And through your child, the Messiah is going to be born, and it's going to be great, happy, wonderful. But Abraham was like 100 years old, and Sarah was like 100 years old too. So neither one of them, both of them were past the age of having children. And so they're like, God, this is a problem. And he didn't say anything. So they're, hmm, how can we we figure this out? And Sarah had this great idea. Let's help God out. Let's help him out. Here's my my slave, my bond servant, this lady that helps me out, works for us. Why don't you, Abraham, sleep with her and have a child with her and we'll just call him our child? How does that sound? And he's like, okay. Great decision, Abraham. So, he does that. That's Hagar. Hagar is the name of that Sarah is the name of his wife. Hagar is the name of this lady. And so Hagar gets pregnant and has a baby named Ishmael. And Abraham's like, oh, I love Ishmael so much. And so God rolls up into Abraham's tent and says, hey, Abraham, remember that promise? You're going to have a son. And he's like, I know, I have a son. Right here. And God's like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. You and Sarah are going to have a son. And so the next year, Sarah got pregnant and had a baby, and that baby's name was Isaac. And Isaac was born and they kicked out Hagar and Ishmael, but Abraham still loved Ishmael, so he didn't like they didn't kill him. They just said you guys can't live with us anymore. Okay? And then Ishmael, all the sons of Ishmael and all the sons of Isaac grew like they had generations and generations. The sons of Isaac became the nation of Israel. And the sons of Ishmael became all the Arab people. So there's this great conflict now between all the Arabs and the Jews, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel. And it all stems back to Abraham's dumb choice. (laughs) Okay, so that's the basic story for us. As we move on, we'll, we'll refer back to some of these things. So it was a misguided surrogate mother scheme to help God out. How I summarize the story. So, the number one contrast we're going to see here is slavery, or that we do see, is slavery versus freedom. Legalism is slavery, grace in the new covenant is freedom. Slavery versus freedom. He says here, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman, and the other by the free woman. Verse 23 But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he who was of the free woman was through promise. All right? So, according to the flesh means by human efforts, right? Abraham had a great idea. Hey, I know how I can fix this problem. Be unfaithful to my wife, sleep with this other lady. Yeah, that sounds like a great plan, Abraham. It also equates to us, legalism. Hey, I have a way that I can please God. I have a way that I can figure out this problem. I need to just try harder. I need to stop wearing pants, if you're a woman in church. I need to cut my hair a certain way. I need this, that, and the other. This is our way of trying to figure out what pleases God. Did it please God that Abraham slept with his handmaiden, his servant? No, it didn't please God. And so that's legalism. It denies God's promise and tries to make your own way to God through the law. This is like, uh, this is living like a descendant of Abraham, but it's like living like Ishmael. So that's what he's telling these people is that you guys are descendants of Abraham because you do know the Lord, but you're living like Ishmael. Whose, whose life is marked by efforts and trying to do things out of his own way. All right, so um, a quote from Charles Spurgeon says, the better legalist a man is, the more sure he is of being damned. The more holy a man is, if he trusts to his works, the more he may rest assured of his own final rejection and eternal portion with the Pharisees. Whoa, that's intense. So he contrasts it here. The according to the flesh is contrasted with the free woman who was through the promise. That child was through the promise. So the flesh is contrasted with promise, which is a miracle, which is a work of God, which is trust, faith. These things are how God works, this is how a promise works. So the number two contrast that we see between legalism and grace is a work of a fle- of flesh versus a promised miracle. A promised miracle. Now, guys, I want, to t- I want to take this opportunity to look in your life and what's the thing, the sin that has ravaged you, the sin that has torn you apart? Maybe you did it. Maybe someone else has done it, but what is that thing? And how are you approaching it? Are you approaching it to try to fix it by a work of the flesh, by trying to fix it, by your efforts? Or are you waiting and trusting and asking God to do a miracle? Oh, but God only helps those who help themselves. Where is that in the Bible? It is so unbiblical to say that. God helps those who give up and wait on him. And I tell that to people who are struggling in their marriages and they come in for marriage counseling and they're like, we've tried everything and nothing works. And I'm like, great, stop. Stop trying. Put your marriage on the shelf and stop. Stop. Wife, stop. Because you're trying sounds like nagging. Husband, stop. Because you're trying looks like bullying, and nothing is getting accomplished. It's a sin and death all over your marriage. It smells. And so I tell them, guys, stop trying. God has provided a way to deal with sin, and it's a miracle. You have to trust Him for a miracle. Oh, but I don't really believe in miracles. Well, then don't come to church. Stop coming to a pastor to talk to me. Because this is we, do, we deal with miracles. We deal with God who does miracles. And that's what we believe in. That's a church. That's Jesus. Sorry if that doesn't line up with your way that the world works and your marriage works. But it's true. That's what we believe in. And if you ever have a pastor that says, Oh, well, if you just follow these steps... You'll get it figured out, brother. Run out of that church and go to a church that says, I don't really know what's going on, but we'll pray and trust God. That's the church you want to be in. That's the church. Because, man, it's grace. It's grace that fixes things, it's grace that heals us, it is grace that we need. Paul is so clear. So, it's not a work of the flesh, it's a promised miracle. Verse 24. Let's go there. Sorry, I got a little heated. (laughs) Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children but the Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who had a husband. Wow. In our language, that's kind of confusing. We get kind of uh, overwhelmed by the amount of... Words and locations and, and texts that we just read there. And, and he, pulled in a, he pulled a lot out of those couple verses in Genesis. And he, and he basically said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you some symbolic stuff that God was doing through this story, okay? So, it is symbolic. It is a picture for us. And it's a picture of two covenants, two contracts, two ways of relating to God, two rule, sets of rules to abide by. You have the one set of the Old Covenant. Follow these ten rules and you'll be all right. The other set of the New Covenant. I'll do everything for you if you just trust me. Those are the two sets. Okay? And he he calls the first one Mount Sinai. What do we know about Mount Sinai? You guys are biblical scholars so you guys know that that's the mountain that Moses went up to in in Saudi Arabia there. And uh, God gave him the Ten Commandments there. So it's pretty clear why Paul chose that as the the mountain that he's talking about. So that mountain symbolizes the Old Covenant. And what does it say here? That that gives birth to bondage. Well, that's not very good. Slavery. No freedom. So he's saying this first New Covenant, it doesn't give birth to life. It doesn't bring life. It doesn't bring freedom. It only brings slavery. We've heard that many, many times before. But how many times do you just feel trapped in your relationship with God? Just feel like there's shackles on your ankles, or you're, you, you feel like you just can't break free from this sin that has you dominated over here, or this relationship that is heavy on you over there. You just can't break free. That's Old Covenant stuff, okay? Okay. Since it's all about what we must do for God to be accepted by him, it doesn't set us free. It puts us on a perpetual treadmill of having to prove ourselves and earn our way before God. Do you ever get tired of running the Christian life? Why? Because that's not what the Christian life should be. We're not on a treadmill. We're not trying to do things. Hebrews chapter 4, and you guys have to come to the Refresh conference, okay? You guys know, you guys heard about it, October 4th and 5th, who's going? And everyone else who didn't put their hand up, I know you meant to. So, October 4th and 5th is Refresh, and I'm going to give you guys a secret. Nobody else knows this. Pastor Sandy Adams is coming to teach, right? He's awesome, he's funny, he's from Georgia, so you know he's going to be awesome. He's going to come and he's going to teach four sessions on Hebrews chapter 4. And Hebrews chapter 4 is all about this, and it's all about the rest of God. Not like the rest of Him that you didn't know about. The rest. The not working part of your relationship with God, which is everything. Then the rest of God in ministry, how you can trust the Lord with ministry. So it's so exciting. So Hebrews chapter 4 says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering into his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to come short of it. And it's such an important, vital verse because the, the idea that a Christian life is about how hard you try is like so not true. I don't know how to say it any other way. There's a rest. And when you rest in what God has done for you, You'll see just the Christian life is just joy. You wake up in the morning and it's like I can't wait to read my Bible. When before it was like, Oh, reading my Bible is oh it's like you pick it up and it's like a thousand pounds and you put it on the table, and you're like, Oh, here we go again. And as soon as you start reading, the kids start screaming and your wife starts saying something, and you're like, Oh But when you're trusting in the Lord, it's just different. The Lord works it out. So, the covenant corresponds to the Jerusalem, which now is, is, this, is his contrast. Or the Jerusalem, which now is, is uh, speaking of the earthly Jerusalem, which at that time with Paul was the capital of religious Judaism. That's the way that most Jewish people in Paul's day tried to be right with God, was there in Jerusalem. Because they had to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, to make their sacrifices, right? So, he contrasts this with the Jerusalem that's above which we know is called Mount Zion, which is a different mountain, and the book of Hebrews tells us that that's what he's talking about, which equals heaven, which equals freedom, which equals Jesus. So that's the contrast that we're seeing. One is this earthly mountain that you could go to today in, in Arabia, or in Saudi Arabia. you got to sneak in, and they got armed guards and stuff, so you, you have to sneak, but you can do it. You could go there. And then the other one is heaven. Okay, that's the difference between two places. Mount Zion is, or Mount uh, Sinai is like the picture of the highest you could climb to get to God here on the earth. Your greatest efforts is pictured by this Mount Sinai, and heaven is like this unbelievably tall mountain that no one can attain to, but we're just brought to through relationship. So, is your relationship with God a matter of heaven? coming down to earth or is it like earth trying to reach up to heaven that's your contrast so contrast number three is heaven versus earth and it's worth reminding ourselves of the extreme relevance of all of this many people look at the issues that paul uh, is passionate about here and they just yawn and they just say paul you're dealing with a theological speculation I've got other problems. My marriage is in trouble. I can't pay my bills. I've got a lot of personal problems. You would do me much more good by teaching me about those things than going on and on about your theology about being right with God. But Paul would respond, the most important thing in your life is being right with God. If that isn't right, then nothing else matters. If that isn't right, then God will bless you. If that is right, then God will bless you and teach you about your marriage, teach you about your money, and take care of your personal problems. And regarding the solutions to our day-to-day problems, Jesus said, seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added to you. And that's what he's talking about. And as a pastor, when people come in for counseling and they say, Oh, I got this problem and that problem and this problem. And people call in on the radio and they'll say, oh, this and that. It's actually pretty easy to give them an answer. And the answer, sometimes I feel silly saying the same thing over and over and over again. Go to Jesus and trust him. And and you're like, oh, well... It's not really what I wanted to hear. I wanted you to hear that my wife is wrong. That's really what would be nice to hear right now. Oh, I'm so sorry. Even if she is wrong, that's not the solution to your problem. Telling her she's wrong isn't going to do anything. Trusting Jesus is something that a pastor can tell you that works. So, Going back into Galatians, uh, he says, which is the mother of us all, verse 27, for it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who did not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. This here is showing us that the glory of the new covenant of grace would would soon be seen, even in Paul's day, in that there would be much, many more followers of true Christianity than even Judaism. It was a prophecy. It was saying that this way of relating to God on grace was going to spread throughout the world, and people were going to do it. People would trust Jesus, and it did. Christianity became huge. So our, our number four contrast is many. Legalism has many followers, but grace has many more. Many more. And look what he says there. It says, I mean, it brings a great, uh, you know, he's talking about this woman who had no, you know, had children. And and it was kind of unnatural how she had children because she was barren. And he says, rejoice, because all this stuff is all God working. A miracle. A barren woman having a child is a miracle. And he's saying, this is going to happen. This works. This is a sure thing. There's not many sure things in the world, right? if I told you it was a sure thing you would win the lottery tomorrow, would you go play? Maybe. It, probably. A lot of people would. If I said, it's a sure thing that the Broncos are going to win the Super Bowl, make me happy. I'd say, that's cool. There's not many sure things, though. But here, Jesus is saying, and he even prophesied in the Old Testament, it is a sure thing that faith is Works, the new covenant does not fail. They will have children, and the des for that desolate that what looks hopeless, someone just giving up and just trusting the Lord will have many more children than she who had a husband. That person who said, "I have it all together. I'm I'm Jewish. I I have the law. I have a husband." That didn't really work out for them. So, verse twenty eight. But we brethren. As Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, that um, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So we must identify with the right son. Isaac. The number five contrast that we see is persecuted versus persecuting. Isaac, those who trust the Lord only and who say, I'm going to trust the Lord, they are persecuted. It says here. And the legalistic person is the one doing the persecuting. And this may rock your world, But think in your mind, are you the one doing the persecuting? Are you the one who's saying, that person's actions stink? I'm not saying be dumb about it and and lie about something and say, oh yeah, they're doing right. But having the mindset that they would be better if they changed this part of their actions. If they follow this rule better, that's what they need. Having that mindset, oh, we have just fallen back into legalism. Instead of having the mindset of, yeah, that's sin. That's sin right there. I'm honest about it. I identify it. It's sin in that person's life. So they need Jesus. They need to trust Jesus. Jesus. They need to come to Jesus. And so, you know what I can do? I can come to them and I can say, hey bro, can we pray about something? And pray. Lead them to Jesus and help them to understand, to trust Jesus. Don't say, fix your problems. Don't say that. That's the cruelest thing to say to someone. Do you you tell a baby crawling on the floor, stand up and walk? Oh, you'd probably be like put in jail for child abuse or something. Even and especially if he said, "You got to try harder. You got to try hard to walk. Try, try, try," and the baby's like, "Mama." I mean, it's just, it's not the way it works. Growth and fruit in a person's life never comes through efforts. We have to lead them, and when we get that, when we get in this legalistic mindset, and it's so easy to go. You know what? You, just, you need to change, and I'm going to persecute you until you change. I'm going to hold that law as a rod above you, and I'm going to beat you until you change. And yet we think that works in our marriages. And we think that works with our kids. And we think that works in our relationships, and it doesn't. Only leading people to Jesus works persecuted versus persecuting as we walk in the glory in the freedom and in the miraculous power of the new covenant we should expect to be mistreated by those who don't people laugh at me i think on the radio i I just i hear it and i know i know that i've talked to people and i've i've said you know I, i teach them about grace i teach them about this and trust in the lord oh but you don't really think that that's all you do right that you just trust the Lord and you just seek Him. That's, that really is all. You are the dumbest pastor. I mean, I went to seminary for four years, and then, you know, and, and that's definitely not where I think. And, and I, I feel that persecution. I really do. I feel that it's there. I feel like half the Christians in Denver turn me off. I don't know that for certain. But I feel like it. I feel that maybe because of certain conversations that I've had, and certain people are like, oh, you're that guy on the radio? Yeah, it's a little bit simple, don't you think? And I'm just like, all right. Boyce said this The persecution Christians face will not always be by the world, but also, indeed, more often, by their half brothers, the unbelieving but religious people in the nominal church. This is the lesson of history. Today, the greatest enemies of the believing church are found among the members of the unbelieving church, the greatest opposition emanating from pulpits and church hierarchies. The most crazy conversation I've had since uh, since I've become a pastor was at the afters concert. You guys remember the afters concert that we had? And this guy came up to me afterwards, and I gave the gospel at the afters concert, and I told about a guy who had gotten, uh, you know, a girl pregnant, and he came back to the Lord, and he, he repented. And so I used this, this image of, of repentance uh, to tell him about Jesus accepting him. Okay. And he came up, and he had a, a big beard. So I knew right away, either this guy's really cool, or, hmm, interesting. And he came up, and he said, hey, I, hey, can I talk with you for a minute? I said, okay. And he said, you know, um, you totally don't understand the Bible, and I was like, "Oh, really? W- would you tell me?" And he said, "Yeah, you got to keep the Torah." And I didn't know how he pronounced it, but he's like "Torah," and, uh, he, some sort of phlegm or something. But he kept saying it, so I think that's how he was trying to pronounce it. Uh, and he said, "You got it. The Old Testament. It's all about keeping these rules and keeping these laws." And and I said, "Is that why you don't you don't cut your beard?" And He's like, "Yes, yes. That's why I don't cut my beard." And I said, w- "Are you are you wearing?" Um, tassels on your shirt? And he said, no. And I said, it's in the same verse in the Old Testament that says, don't cut your beard and and put tassels on your shirt. So, are are you being disobedient right now? And he's like, well, some of them, I mean, just don't make, you know. Art. And I was like, bro, bro, you don't know who you're talking to right now. <laughs> and I, I proceeded to tell him about grace for like an hour and a half. Um, it was a great conversation but he was very heated and he did not believe he would never change his mind and I left that conversation and I was I was so sad you know those conversations where you just know you're right (laughs) and he knows well he didn't know he he was so frustrated that he couldn't win the the, the conversation you know because he would say oh but what about this and I'd say you know well here's where Paul talks about it oh but what about well here's where Paul talks about that and it was it was awesome you know, to be able to have those answers and, and actually this study in Galatians had prepared me for that conversation. So it was really awesome. But persecuted versus persecuting. Then he says here in verse 30, he said, cast out that bondwoman and her son. See, Abraham and Sarah lived with Hagar and Ishmael for a few years until Isaac was born. Right. But then he cast her out and he said, here, that's what we're to do. Cast out the bondwoman." See, law and grace cannot live together as principles for our Christian life. We can't go back and forth. It's either law, and go with that, or grace, and go with that. But you can't have both. They're mutually exclusive. We could argue all day long about who um, whose fault it was, but that isn't the point. With Hagar and Sarah, leaving abraham it's not the point whose fault it was the point is that god told abraham to send hagar away so also every christian must send away the idea of relating to god on the principles of the law and the principle of what we do for him instead of what he has done for us in jesus christ we have to we have to wage war that's why war on legalism is the title of our series We have to wage war with the thoughts because the world and the flesh and the devil are always going to be putting that thought back in your mind of oh, you can do something for God right here. You can do this and and your actions and your efforts and you and you and you. And we have to wage war every day to throw it back on Jesus and say, no, it's about what Jesus did for me. It's about Jesus. I'm a pastor because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. I'm going to teach because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. I'm going to have a marriage because I'm going to love my wife, I'm going to love my kids, I'm going to do these things because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. We constantly throw back, I have a sin in my life, but I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. I'm going to give it to him. I believe he paid for it. I'm going to keep doing that. So the number six contrast is from when he said, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. The number six contrast is Legalism inherited nothing, inherits nothing, versus a son who inherits everything. I love that. The bondwoman was not an heir. He got nothing. Ishmael got nothing. Isaac got everything. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So the number seven contrast is one we talked about last time we got together, which is relationship is based on trusting God versus relationship based on law-keeping. Their relationship is based on trusting God. That's kind of a summary of this whole thing. So, if I had two columns here, I would have the Ishmaels of legalism over here and I would have the Isaacs of true Christianity over here. Okay? And I'm just going to... You'd have slavery and bondage contrasted with freedom you have Isaac born by God's promised miracle and Ishmael born according to the flesh and the efforts of the flesh. You have coming from the heavenly Jerusalem and coming from the earthly Jerusalem. Heaven versus earth. Many more children with versus just many children. Persecuted versus persecuting. Inheriting everything versus inheriting nothing. And relationship based on trusting God and this one is a relationship based on law-keeping and your efforts. Henry Morris, this last quote for the evening. Barclay makes the point that anyone who makes the law central is in the position of a slave. All his life, he's seeking to satisfy his master, the law. But when grace is central, that person has made love the dominant principle and it will be the power of love, and not the constraint of the law, that keeps us right. And love is always more powerful than the law. You know they say Christianity is oh such a lovey dovey thing. You guys always talk about love and love and ah oh, I'm a man. I need I need rules. I want law. I'm a military guy. I need I need. This is the way it is, and this is what you do that doesn't work sorry you are a military guy i didn't mean that offensively (laughs) but love is what this is all about he wants us to grow to love him and the work he's done for us to prove his love was that he died for us on the cross and he wants to trust us he wants us to trust that on a daily basis no matter what your issue is, no matter what your problem is, no matter what the sin is, or the conflict we have with your family, or your whatever, when it's love that's motivating you, you'll do it's so much more powerful than our efforts to keep the law. You know, you'll you'll die for someone if you love them. And that's what it's all about. Jesus said. Greater love has no one than this, than him who would lay down his life for his friends. Right? Dying for them. How many people could you think of that you'd die for right now? Some guy came in with a gun and said, Hey, this is a stick up. I don't know if they do that anymore, but, Hey, I'm going to kill someone. <laughs> who in here would you stand up and say, No, I'll, I'll die for that person. Who in your life? Who in the whole world? And I know the answer for you guys is actually, there. You would. Because you guys have the Holy Spirit in you. And you would give your life. But then there's those people that hate us and hurt us. And and those are the tough ones where we have the opportunity to love them beyond what the world thinks is appropriate. You just love them. Even when they're hurting you and hate you, you love them. And that's from God. And that is the thing that, that will rock this world like that's part of my testimony like I know that God will give you the power to love anyone no matter what they're doing if you seek him and trust him and he'll do miracles to make it happen in your life let's pray Jesus we do love you Lord I know the faces and the names and the hearts in this room Lord are are desperately in love with you that's why they wouldn't be here on a Wednesday night if they weren't Lord, we want to wage war, wage war on those thoughts and those attitudes that creep into our hearts of self-sufficiency, of legalism, and of, of persecuting and, and our efforts and all these different things that we've learned about tonight. Lord, we want to fight against that. We want to always be pushing towards loving you and loving what you did on the cross and trusting it. So Jesus, you are our rock. You are our salvation. We don't look to anyone else, especially ourselves, to bring us victory or salvation in our life. We look only to You. So it's in Your name that we pray. Amen.